Fed up with the everyday grind? Tired out by the dull routine? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape! Escape! Transcribed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. You are flying over the lonely wastes of the Pacific, lost, torn by the fury of a typhoon, your gas running out. And ahead of you is an adventure so strange, so terrifying, that your mind cannot accept it. Today we escape from reality with a tale of a Navy flyer who vanished from the face of the earth into a new world of the future, as Nelson Bond told it in his story, Conqueror's Isle. You've got to believe this. It sounds utterly impossible, I know. It sounds... it sounds crazy. That's why I'm here, sir. But it's the truth, and you've got to believe it. You've got to, sir. You've got That's to. the way he started, almost as soon as I'd walked into his hospital room. He wasn't violent, you understand. There was no need for restraint. But his every action, every gesture was evidence of a psychotic condition. To be extremely charitable, battle fatigue. Well, anyway, it was an odd case. I was already acquainted, of course, with the history... Young man, graduate of, of Annapolis, lieutenant in the fleet air arm, excellent record, citations for bravery and so forth. And toward the end of the war, he and his bomber crew disappeared over the South China Sea. Search failed to turn them up. They were, of course, presumed to be lost. And then a month ago, almost four years later, Lieutenant Brady was found by a Brazilian freighter drifting helplessly and nearly dead in a tiny life raft from the airplane. Curiously enough, his position was not far from that last reported by his radio operator four years ago. But when he was asked where he'd been, he gave a story so fantastic, so utterly unbelievable... It's the truth, and you've got to believe it. You've got to, sir. At ease, Lieutenant. I'm sorry, sir. I'm here to consult with you as a physician, not order your cure as a superior officer. Now, suppose we ignore the braid while you tell me about it. Oh, thank you, Doctor. Where should I begin? Well, it's your story. You know what it is you want me to believe. The trouble began, I understand, on your last bombing mission. Yes, that's right. That's where my troubles began. The thing's been going on for much longer than that. Years, certainly. Decades, perhaps. Somebody has got to do something, Doctor. Time is racing by, and with every passing day, they grow stronger. I've got to make people understand. Lieutenant. Now, suppose you start at the beginning with that unfortunate last flight. Yes, sir. I, I'm sorry. I got a little... Well, then it, it was this way. We'd finished our mission and we were starting for home. We were over the South China Sea between the Philippines and Indochina, roughly off Palawan. And everything was peaches and cream. The Arden Alice was purring along like a dream and I was sitting there chewing up a pack of Lifesavers, thinking how good that can of cold beer was going to taste when the intercom crackled in my ear. Lieutenant Jep Freighter, 10 o'clock. Huh? Yeah, you're right. Looks like a single tramp beating up the coast. You still got a Bertha? Yes, sir. Okay, maybe we can have some fun. Red 4 to Mac. Red 4 to Mac. Go ahead, Red 4. Jap Freighter, 10 o'clock. Check. We've still got a Bertha. How about it? Why not? It's your party. Go ahead and good luck. Roger and out. 
was as easy as hitting a sitting duck. The long dive, the bomb release, the pull out, the dull concussion. We laid it down her aft stack, and that Jap ship went up like a Roman candle. Hey, hey, nice going, Lieutenant. Right on the button. That's one Jap we won't have to worry about anymore. Lieutenant, we're hit. Huh? A piece of that Jap must have come up and hit us. We're spraying gas all over the Pacific out of the left-wing tank. Yeah, I see it now. Well, guys, get ready for a bath. We'll never make it back. I'm checking. He's Saturday night. Never mind. I always did want to take a ride on one of them little rubber boats. No need to worry. The Navy takes care of its own. They'll be out to get us before we have a chance to get thirsty. Red four to Mac. Red four to Mac. Nice going, fella. Yeah. Only it was a two-way deal. We're hit, Mac. Losing gas fast. Think you can make it? Nope. It's a salt bath for us. Sorry, fellas. Keep your radio on. Give your last position to base before you ditch it. They'll have a rescue party out in an hour. Welcome. See you tonight. Good luck. Over. Roger out. You see, there was nothing to it. it. Happened every day. With ships all over the Pacific, they'd have a destroyer sitting there when we came down. But a half hour later, when our gas was down to a few cupfuls and the rest of the squadron was long out of sight, an amazing thing happened. One minute the sky was clear and cloudless. The next minute we were surrounded by thunderheads and a typhoon burst on us. Holy cow, Lieutenant, where'd this come from? I don't know, but it's a Lulu. Fasten your safety belts, there's no telling what this'll do to us. It was a granddaddy typhoon, all right, but it lasted only a few minutes. Then we got out of it as miraculously as we'd come into it. And wonder of wonders, we were directly over a small island. Well, what do you know? Take a look at that sight for sore eyes. Man, oh man, it looks mighty fine to me. Uh, what island is it, Lieutenant? I don't know. I don't recognize it. And after the way we got tossed around back there, I haven't any idea of our position. We could be anywhere from the coast of China to the Philippines. Who knows? Who cares? It's dry land. Yeah, just in time. We're out of gas. Hey, Jack. Yeah? See if you can get a fix and radio our position. We're going down. We landed safely on a little strip of sandy beach. And only after we'd climbed out of the plane did we begin to have any misgivings. What do you think, Skipper? Well, it doesn't look like much, but... I don't see anybody. Not a sign of life. I got a good look from topside coming down. There weren't any houses, nothing. Well, still, you can't tell. They could be Japs. Or worse. Headhunters, maybe. We better stick together, stay close to the plane. Shouldn't be more than a few hours. Oh, yeah, except... Hey, what the... Hold it. Hello there. A white man. Hey, what oh, is brother. this? Keep your eyes open. It might be a trap. But he's a white man. He speaks English and he's not armed. No, I don't see any guns. Just the same. Watch it. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome. We saw you land, so I hurried out to see if I could be of any assistance. Uh, may I introduce myself? I'm Dr. Grove. I'm Lieutenant Brady, and these are my men. Radio man Kavanaugh, my gunner, Sergeant Geller. Hi, Hi It's a pleasure, Grove. gentlemen. Pleasure. Are any of you in need of medical assistance? No, thanks. We're all Okay. Just a little surprise to find anyone here. Well, yes, of course. Uh, that can be explained to you later. But uh, right now, you'll be wanting food and rest. Hey, now, a little chow wouldn't be bad. But first, <laughs> we we have to get in touch with our base. Give them our position. Oh, of course. But uh, such things take some time in these primitive areas. Oh, we have a radio on the plane. Did have, Skipper. Well, I was uh, just starting to tell you. It went out just before we sighted the island. Must have got wanged up in that storm. Well, can you fix it? 
Well, I suppose so, if it's nothing serious. I'll uh, tell you better after I have a chance to look at it. Of course. But in the meantime, I hope you'll accept our humble hospitality. We don't have the pleasure of entertaining new guests here often. It'll be good to chat with you all. Uh, if you'll follow me, please. How about it, Skipper? Sure. Why not? After the last half hour, we could all use a little relaxation. Very good. Uh, right this way, please. I should have smelled it right then. There was something strange about the whole thing. There were a lot of questions in my mind, but somehow I didn't ask them. Instead, we walked down the jungle path behind Dr. Grove like lambs to the slaughter. Tom Geller must have had the same misgivings because he whispered in my ear. I don't get it, Skipper. Don't get what, Tom? Where do these guys come from? Where do they hang out? When we were coming in, I made sure to take a good look at this island. There were no houses, no nothing. I don't know. I guess we'll find out soon enough. Yeah. Hey, stop it. Oh, holy cow, will you look at that? Dr. Grove stopped in front of what looked like a big rock. And then we saw it was expertly camouflaged cement with a sliding door. There. Here we are, gentlemen. If you'll be good enough to enter. Enter what? That? <laughs> Don't be alarmed. It's only an elevator. An elevator? In this jungle? Hey, what kind of monkey business is this, anyhow? Do you mean to tell me you live underground? My dear lieutenant, I'll be glad to explain everything later. It's all very simple. But uh, first, I must insist that you oh, enter the shaft. so now you're insisting. And suppose we prefer not to step into your elevator. Then what? Then I should be compelled, uh, most regretfully, to enforce my request. Guess again, pal. We happen to be armed. A gun. Three guns. See, that's one detail you overlooked. I overlooked no details, Lieutenant. Uh, would you be kind enough to fire your gun? Watch yourself, Skip. It's a trick. He wants you to shoot. The sound will bring help. Wrong, my friend. I need no help. Very well. If you won't accept my invitation... Wait a minute. Keep your hand out of your pocket. Perhaps you would care to stop me, Lieutenant? Okay, if you asked for it. What the... Hey, Lieutenant! <laughs> Try again, Lieutenant, but your gun will not work. Skipper, on he's side. right. Mine Neither won't work mine. either. And now, perhaps you'll be kind enough to step into the shaft? Look, I don't know what's going on here, but I don't want any part of it. Yeah, neither do I. Come, Come on, on, gang. Let's get out of here. Just you a minute. It. I'm sorry. You forced me to use harsh measures. Uh, believe me, I do so reluctantly. What's that you've got there? Just a small tube, but a very potent weapon, I must warn you. Yeah? Well, then you better use it fast. I made a desperate lunge for him, and suddenly... A tiny shaft of light flicked out from the tube and touched me. And I stopped, frozen in my tracks, conscious, my eyes open, seeing him, hearing him. But try as I would... I could not move a muscle. I was as if turned to stone. In just a moment, we will return to escape. But first, both Gangbusters and The Adventures of Philip Marlowe are regular Saturday night features on most of these same CBS network stations. So be listening tonight when they bring you an exceptional, fast-moving, gripping hour of mystery. And now, with our stars, David Ellis, Ted Von Eltz, and Bill Johnstone, we return to the second act of Escape and Conqueror's Isle. Ah, 
I was paralyzed, Dr. Gorham. Completely paralyzed. As if turned to stone. I had all my senses. I could... I could see and hear and feel, but I couldn't move a muscle, not even turn my eyes. And you say this happened because of some kind of light beam? Well, not exactly a beam, sir. Perhaps not exactly light. Just a kind of... kind of radiance. A gas, perhaps? No, because it had no form, no odor, no taste. It was like becoming enmeshed in a web of moonbeams. I see. And its only effect on you was to immobilize you. Yes, that's right. It didn't burn or sting or cause pain in any way. I simply couldn't move. It was like a hypnotic trance. And then? Well, then some of Dr. Grove's companions came out of the elevator. They picked us up and carried us. I could feel their hands very softly, as if they were far away from my body, as if there were layers of rubber between them and me. And I could hear Dr. Grove talking. Place him in the shaft. Gently, please. I could see him bending over me into my line of vision. I'm sorry, Lieutenant. I sincerely regret having to inconvenience you. But, you see, just as we have the means of hampering your primitive mechanical devices, your guns, your radio, so do we have the means to enforce our requests. Requests which are, I assure you, only reasonable and necessary under the circumstances. Very well. Take us down. My head was reeling, and fear was growing in me. Who were these men to talk of radio as a primitive device? What kind of men were they? Where were they taking the three of us, and what were they going to do with us? As if he'd read my thoughts, Dr. Grove leaned over me again. There's no need to be alarmed, Lieutenant. No need at all. All right. Gently. Carry them gently. Well, Fraser. I'm sorry, Fraser Dorden. It was necessary. They would not come willingly. I see. Yeah, a few of them do. Well, put them in the sleeping chambers until they recover. And be gentle. They are so frightened. Poor things. Poor things. Poor things, he'd said. Not as if we were human beings at all, but animals. Some weak, dumb animals with whom they must be gentle. It was then that I began to know real fear. We were in a great underground city, but I could see little of it. Nothing except what passed in front of my rigid eyes. Then I was carried into a room, deposited upon a soft couch, and left alone. I could not close my eyes, but gradually the light began to fade, to melt away. I was in deep blackness, and I slept. I don't know whether the return of the light awakened me or whether it came on automatically when I woke up. But the room was bright and I could move again. I jumped up, tried the door. But of course it was locked. And there was no other way of escape. The room was a small cell with metal walls and ceiling, a kind of metal I'd never seen before. There was a cot, a desk, and a chair, and nothing else. But the really amazing thing was the light. I searched the entire room carefully, but there were no fixtures, no indirect lighting arrangements. The light came out of the walls, evenly filling the room, casting no shadows. Suddenly, I wanted to see Kavanaugh and Geller. I yelled, I yelled at the top of my lungs. But there was almost no sound, no echo from the walls. They simply absorbed the sound into utter silence. Then as I stood there, 
with fear cold in my stomach. I heard a faint sound, a footstep behind me. I whirled around just in time to see Dr. Grove stepping through the wall. You were... You said through the wall, Lieutenant. Of course, you mean through the door. Through the wall. Through the wall, sir. The door was in front of me. But Dr. Grove stepped into my cell through the solid metal wall. You realize that what you're saying is impossible. To us, it is. To them, nothing is impossible. Nothing. That's why we must act and act now before it's too late. You must believe me, sir. This is man's last chance. I'll do my best. Uh, Perhaps you'd better continue. Now, uh, this Dr. Grove stepped through the wall. Yes. As I'll tell the, the rest as quickly as I can, I can see that you don't believe me. But someone must, somewhere, sometime, someone must. Lieutenant. Well, as I said, Dr. Grove stepped into my cell through the wall. Suddenly, my panic ended. I looked at him now with awe. And we talked, not as man to man, but as man to a lesser creature. Me. You must not be frightened, Lieutenant. You do not understand how I pass through a wall which to you seems solid. And not understanding, you feared. But I... Yet there is nothing supernatural or fearful about what I did. Any of us can do it at will. You see, there is no such thing as a solid in this world of relativity. We know that there is plenty of room for the molecules of our bodies to pass between the molecules of those walls. We simply make a necessary mental adjustment and walk where we will. It is an ability as basic to us as breathing to a person like you. What kind of men are you? You have been educated, uh, studied Darwin, you know the facts of evolution. You know how man has progressed through various stages from the primitive savagery of the Neanderthal man. Well, yes, Obviously, but... this process can and will continue. To suppose that the evolution of man is complete with you is a mistake of conceit. You mean you are the next stage? Exactly. You have heard of the process of mutation, perhaps. How suddenly a white rose is produced of a family of red roses and from then on produces only white descendants? Yes. So have we been evolved as mutants, infinitely superior to our parents and our fellow men, knowing by instinct right from birth what you must study years to learn, your most difficult physics and mathematics, our ABCs, our studies far beyond your understanding. Are there... Many of you? Yes. You see, the process has been going on for many years. Hundreds, thousands more come to us every year from all over the world, drawn here by telepathic message, where we have isolation to study, learn, build, prepare ourselves. Prepare? Prepare for what? For the task ahead. Obviously, when we are ready, when we are numerous enough to fill all the necessary positions, our superior intelligence must shape a new world. Take over the world. Obviously. And you will destroy man? How little you understand us. Do you destroy the animals of the field because they are not your intellectual peers? Our obligation is to keep and protect you, to act as your friendly guardians in a world which will be strange to you and, and, and frightening, as my walking through the wall was frightening to you. I see. Yes, I see. Then what is your plan? Rather say, nature's plan. 
And the answer to that lies in history. What became of the anthropoids, the cavemen? They died out. Civilization passed them by. They fell before the onrush of higher forms of life. Even so. Even so. But uh, I give you our pledge that we will be kind. We will be kind. And then he took me out into that great underground city, through its corridors and great halls and laboratories and shops, took me among the thousands of his fellow men. There I saw marvels of which I could talk for hours. There were... But they would be beyond your comprehension as they were beyond mine. You wouldn't believe me, and so I won't bother to tell you. Then I met others like us, some 200 captive cattle, people who had stumbled onto this island as I had. There were famous names among them, a famous author whose ship disappeared in the Pacific years ago, a big game hunter, a famous aviatrix for whom a dozen fleets had sought in vain. All of us, prisoners. We were treated with great kindness, made comfortable, relatively happy. We were their pets, you see. Their dumb animal pets. For over three years I stayed there. After a while I ceased to struggle, even in my mind. I was defeated. And so I succumbed to the peaceful, bucolic existence that was my fate. At least, at least that's what I thought. Then came that last day. Dr. Grove had made me his special pet. I was allowed to follow him about it at work, to talk to him at length. And on this day, he confided in me even more than usual. Well, Lieutenant, it has been a pleasant day. Yes, Doctor. Am I to go now? Not for a moment. Ah, yes, I shall miss having you with me when I'm gone. Gone? You're going away, sir? Yes, very soon. But where? Out. Out into the world where you once lived. But why? Oh, there are many, very many of us there already. In strategic places, of course. An important politician here, an industrial magnate there, a famous author whose words are gospel to his readers. I will have my place, an important one. But I didn't know. You didn't tell me that it's already begun. Oh, yes, definitely. The hour is close at hand. And then, all of us, the whole world. Lieutenant. You know us now. You know that we will be kind. Kind. Yes, kind. Suddenly all the anger that was in me welled up. I didn't want to be a dumb animal, a pet for some superior being to be kind to. I didn't want that for my loved ones, my friends, my fellow men. That night at dinner when they fed the prisoners in a big communal hall, I got a chance to talk to Kavanaugh, my old radio man. He listened and then shrugged hopelessly. They'll succeed, Joe. You know that. No. Not if the world could be warned. I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't make any difference. Besides, how could they be warned? If somebody could get away from here. Escape? That's impossible. I know. That's what I thought. But listen, I've got an idea. There's one chink in their invincibility. What? Their gentleness, their kindness. They can't bear to hurt anyone. None of their weapons kill, but only, only paralyze temporarily. 
and they simply cannot conceive of treachery. What are you driving at? This. I'm going to play on Dr. Grove's liking for me, his kindness. And I'm going to trick him. How? Tomorrow I'll ask him to take me up above, back to the plane, to... to get pictures of my father and sister. Tell him I'm lonesome, suffering. He'll do it. I'm sure he will. It's very kind of you, Dr. Grove, to do this for me. Oh, not at all, Lieutenant. I understand your feeling. With you leaving, I'd have no one, no one close. The pictures will make me feel a lot better. I only hope they're still here. The plane is partially demolished by the weather, as you can see. Oh, they'll be there. They were in the map compartment. They'd be out of the weather. Well, here we are. Dr. Grove, look, Uh, over there. Where are Sorry, Doctor, but I had to do it. I hope I didn't kill him. He had been kind, but I hit him hard. Then I broke out a life raft from the rotting plane. I was almost afraid to look at it, but it was okay, even complete with supplies, four years old. I ripped the valve and threw it into the water. In five minutes, I was out beyond the breakers. I don't know how many days or weeks it was before they picked me up, but it was a long time. And I was more dead than alive. Yes, yes, Lieutenant, you were in bad shape. It was a horrible experience. But you see, it doesn't matter about me. It's the others that... You don't believe me either, do you? Well, Lieutenant, it's it's been a pleasure to listen to your story. I'll make a report to my superiors. Please be patient and try not to worry. (laughs) Try not to worry. Good day, Lieutenant. Get out. Get out, sir. Oh, there, Commander Gorham. You've talked to him? What's the verdict? A clear case of persecution mania. An amazing form. I've never heard a tale more complete and logical, yes, but I... Yes, I know what you mean. Well, do what you can for him. I'm afraid he's going to be here for a long time. Perhaps for as long as he lives. Turned loose, he might be dangerous. Yeah, that's too bad. Nice boy, too. Floating for four weeks on a life raft, and heaven knows what before that. It sure does things to a man. Well, Doctor, how about lunch? No, no, thanks. I've got to run along. I have to turn in my report and recommendation on this case. Oh, of course. Well, I'll see you later. I watched the man disappear down the hall. I stood there for a moment lost in thought, seeing the face of that boy in there. It was hard to know how best to be kind to a boy like that, but I roused myself. I had much to do. So much. And if I went down through the lobby of the hospital, some fool would surely delay me and get me into a long-winded discussion, and I didn't feel a bit like talking. I wanted to get out of this place and forward my report, my report that this Brady case was closed, that there'd be no more trouble from this source. My car was just outside on the street, There was no one in sight in the corridor. So I turned and... quietly walked through the wall. Escape is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Today we have presented transcribed Conqueror's Isle by Nelson Bond, adapted for radio by John Dunkel. 
Starred as Lieutenant Brady was David Ellis, as Dr. Gorham, Ted Von Eltz, as Dr. Grove, Bill Johnstone. Featured players were Sam Edwards and Dick Benedict. The special music was arranged and played by Ivan Dittmars. Be sure and be with us again next week at the same time when we will bring you another great story of mystery and intrigue by one of the world's outstanding authors of high adventure as CBS again presents Escape! Ronnie and Benita are two names that are as familiar to Jack Benny fans as Mary, Phil, Rochester, Dennis, and Don. And since Jack Benny has received thousands of letters asking that the Ronald Coleman's be brought back soon, he's happy to present them as special guests on his program this Sunday. Hear the Jack Benny program on these same CBS stations tomorrow night. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. You are lying helpless in a rude hut in the deep interior of China, not knowing how you got there or why. And before you, you see the face of a beautiful girl and the hard, ruthless figure of a guerrilla chieftain. And you know that in this room there is danger for you, perhaps death. <laughs> We offer you Escape, transcribed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Today we escape to China and the story of a man who lost his memory and almost his life. As James Norman told it in his fascinating story, He Who Rides the Tiger. The figures and faces would come and go. Sometimes I seem to be floating along with them through endless space, but more often I, I could feel myself lying on a hard bed and watching, not moving, with sick and fevered eyes. And there was a big man with brown skin and close-cropped hair. 
and an older man with a white coat. But best of all was the girl, a beautiful girl. Usually her face would dissolve into a great lotus flower that would hang for a moment in the air and then float slowly beyond reach of my thoughts and disappear. Part of this was a dream, of course, and part reality. But I was unable to separate one from the other. How long it went on, it's impossible for me to say. I had no sense of the passage of time. One morning, though, I opened my eyes and looked at the bare walls of the room. The white-haired man sitting by my cot, the other man sitting a few feet away, smoking a cigarette. And then I knew that the dreams had gone away and would not come back. This was reality. Feeling better? Can you hear me? Understand me? Huh? Yes. Yes, of course. Good. Glad you're finally coming out of it. You've been a very sick man, you know. Where am I? Uh, Fengyang Mission Hospital. We're about 600 miles south of Beiping. Uh, that's impossible. How did I get here? I walked in. Dropped unconscious in the courtyard, burning up with fever and suffering from malnutrition. Malnutrition? But I ate lunch yesterday in Peiping. I'm afraid I'll have to contradict you. You've been here for two months. But I don't understand. Doctor, I... I wonder if I could ask your patient a question. Why, oh, yes, yes, of course. It's simply this. What is your name? Oh, it's Armour. David Armour. Ah, yes. So you told us while you were delirious, but we could not be sure. And uh, your business in Peiping, Mr. Armour? I'm a member of the International Committee on Chinese Art Treasures. We've been investigating the policy of the advancing Japanese armies toward protecting and preserving art objects in newly conquered territories. I see. And yesterday, you ate lunch in Peiping. Yes, at the Wagon Lee Hotel. I dropped my wife off at the... Adrian, well, where is she? Where's my wife? Mrs. Armour is in San Francisco at present. San Francisco? Why should... What's this all about? Who are you and what am I doing here? Why have I... Uh, Mr. Armour, please. Uh, Mr. Quinto, I, I think any further questioning had better be postponed until tomorrow. Mr. Armour is in no condition for it. I quite agree with you, Doctor. Very well, Mr. Armour. Until tomorrow, then. Doctor, I don't understand. Who is this Mr. Quinto? What does he want? Well, he's a powerful man among the Chinese... He's been following your condition very closely. I, uh, I don't know what he wants. If I could only remember what happened. I've got to send word to my wife, to Adrian, to the American consul. Uh, my, my wallet, my passport and papers, do you have them? Oh, Mr. Rama, when you arrived here, you were wearing a cast-off uniform of the Japanese army. What? You had no papers or identification. There was nothing in your pockets except this. I haven't told Mr. Quinto about it. Right. It's a little porcelain figurine. A rabbit. Yes, a rabbit. Does it mean anything to you? No, I never saw it before in my life. That's too bad. I was hoping it might help you remember. The last thing I remember is that lunch in Peiping. Seems like yesterday, and yet you tell me it was two months ago. Oh, no, no. I said that you came here two months ago. Um, what was the date of that luncheon, Mr. Armour? It was uh, September 23rd. Yes. Of what year? 1941, of course. What do you mean? What are you driving at? Well, Mr. Armour, apparently the last thing you remember is a lunch that you had in Peiping nearly eight years ago.
understand the doctor has brought you more or less uh, up to date, Mr. Armour. Well, in a general way, yes. He told me about Pearl Harbor and the war and finally the Japanese surrender, the revolution in China and so on. Hasn't helped any as far as my memory is concerned, though. Mm, it's too bad. Uh, let me extend that memory by about 20 minutes. What do you mean? On September 23rd, 1941, you ate lunch at the Wagon Lee Hotel in Peiping with a Mr. Ficking, the Far East correspondent for an American newspaper. Yes, I know that. You left the hotel with Mr. Ficking and engaged a rickshaw, naturally. Two blocks away, it was bumped by a Japanese army truck and overturned. You were thrown out and struck your head on the curbing. But I don't your understand. companion became embroiled in an argument with the truck driver and a crowd gathered. And when the affair quieted down, you had disappeared. From that time until your appearance here at Fengyang, two months ago, your whereabouts are unknown. But how did you find out about this? <laughs> that is uh, unimportant. I am concerned with what you did after that. A war was being fought in China. The whole country was under martial law by one side or the other. Yet, uh, I can find no record of you anywhere. What are you getting at? You were not with the American or Chinese armies, and neither the Japanese army nor the puppet government lists you as a war prisoner. You were not with the Chinese guerrillas. I was one of their leaders. I would have known about that. So, what were you doing, Mr. Armour? Collaborating, perhaps? With the Japanese? There would be no listing of your name in that case. They destroyed all such records before the surrender. And you were wearing a Japanese uniform when you came here. Ah, you're out of your mind. Then suppose you tell me what you were doing. Hmm? I can't tell you. I don't remember. What do you want, anyway? What brought you into this? Two simple words that mean a million dollars. Huh? Even when they are whispered by a man in delirium. Tang bronzes. Tang bronzes? You've heard of them? Yes, of course. The only two pieces in existence are in the Buckingham Palace collection in London. No, but what have they got to do? No, no, not those, Mr. Armour. I'm referring to the four Tang bronzes that are in existence in China. Well, they've been lost for centuries. Oh, no. <laughs> A few Chinese in every generation have always known where they were. We were forced to move them for safekeeping several times during the war. The last time was a few days before the surrender. My men in charge of the job were ambushed and murdered, and the bronzes were stolen. By whom I've not been able to discover. Are you implying that I I learned have... they were being taken to Shanghai. I traced them past Nanking and lost the trail. But they did not reach Shanghai, of that I'm certain. So, why do I come in? Well, from things you have said in delirium, I believe you have seen and touched those bronzes. Perhaps even you know where they are, if you could remember. I want them back, you want your memory back. It's not good to lose eight years with no accounting for one's actions. Hmm? Just what are you suggesting? I suggest that I settle all suspicion by a public statement that you are a member, incognito, of my guerrilla forces during the entire war. Then the two of us will start from Shanghai and work toward Nanking, hoping that some scene or association may serve as a key to unlock your memory. When that happens, we both have what we want. I see. Well, there's only one thing wrong with it. I'm not going to do it. What are your plans, then, Mr. Armour? The doctor says I'll be able to travel by the end of the week. I'm going to take a train to Shanghai and hop the first plane out to San Francisco. Mm. 
I'm afraid you're making a serious mistake. But, of course, it's every man's privilege. At least, I hope you'll carry this with you on your trip. Pistol? What for? Because somewhere there is a person who may not stop at anything to make sure you do not regain your memory at some inconvenient moment. Had you forgotten about that, Mr. Armour? Most of the long train trip to Shanghai was uneventful. I still carried the gun, mostly because I didn't know what else to do with it. But I had only one idea in mind, to get home to San Francisco and to Adrian just as soon as possible. At Nanking, the papers that came on board were carrying the story of my wartime association with Kento's guerrilla forces. Apparently, he'd gone ahead on his own with that part of his plan. From Nanking on, I could hear the other passengers discussing me amongst themselves. And when some 50 miles out of Shanghai, a fat, smiling little Chinese merchant named Mr. Chen sat down in my compartment, began to chatter away about my heroism. It's most remarkable, Mr. Armour, most amazing, that one who served our country in such a glorious way is not able to remember a single one of illustrious exploits. Well, as I told you, Mr. Chen, I was injured nearly eight years ago. I've been suffering from amnesia. It was only oh. last week that my memory came back to me. Oh, yes. It's too shame. And nothing, not one single hour of eight years can be remembered. No? All that I know is what Mr. Kinto tells me. Oh, it's true. Whatever Mr. Kinto say is a much important man, very great leader. A very powerful fighter. Yes, yes, he is. Uh, you know where is Mr. Kinto now? No, he left Yangfang three days ago. I think he went to Peiping. Oh, yes. And uh, your honorable intention, Mr. Armour, they are what? To get a plane to San Francisco just as soon as possible. Oh, it's most excellent plan. Shanghai, very troubled city, very unsettled. Uh, would cause great lamentation in land if action, accident uh, happened to illustrious hero of our country. Accident? Uh, well, who can tell the ways of fate? In city like Shanghai, uh, many accidents can happen, even to brave fighter with loaded pistol and coat pocket. <laughs> it's much better you go away on plane very quickly, Mr. Armour. In Shanghai, I took a taxi to the Cathay Hotel. When I started to check in, I got the first of several surprises. The clerk told me that I had a room already reserved and paid for, by whom he didn't know. At any rate, it was a nice room, one of the best in the house. I picked up the telephone, called the American consul. Then I started the hotel clerk working on an airline reservation. Sent my clothes out to be clean, climbed into a shower. And by the time I'd finished, a boy knocked on my door with an envelope. I opened it, took out the note. Humble token of appreciation for illustrious wartime services, Mr. Chen. Attached to the note was a plane ticket to San Francisco and a seat reservation for noon the next day. I should have expected the second note delivered 15 minutes later, but I didn't. It read, Please do me the honor of joining me in the American bar downstairs at your convenience. Signed, Kento. 
But of course it was I who reserved the room, Mr. Armour. I knew you were planning to stay here at the cafe. And I was only too happy to assist you with this more favor. It won't do you any good, Mr. Cato. I told you in Feng Yang I'm going home right away. Hasty decisions are often reconsidered. Anyway, I think you may have helped some already. Oh? In what way? You were approached on the train by Mr. Chen, who urged you, if I am correctly informed, to leave Shanghai at once. He did more than that. He arranged for a reservation on tomorrow's plane. Well, Mr. Chen becomes more interesting by the minute. And did you know that he also arranged to have you followed from the railroad station? I don't care. I'm not interested in your game, his game, if he has one, or anybody else's. I'm flying to San Francisco tomorrow. <laughs> what a pity. And without knowing a thing about a period of your life that covers nearly eight years. Yeah, whatever it was, it's over and done. What's wrong, Mr. Armour? That girl who just came in. The one who walked past our table. Mm. Oh, yes. What about her? Do you know her? I only wish I did. She's beautiful, isn't she? Can you find out who she is? <laughs> Of course. Although for a man so anxiously hurrying home to his wife. It's... <laughs> oh, oh, well. Waiter. I sat there with my mind spinning madly while the waiter took the folded bill Kento handed him and went over to ask discreet questions. I was certain the girl had looked at me strangely as she passed the table. Even now, she glanced back from the bar before moving on through the room and out the door. To the best of my knowledge, I, I'd never seen her before in my life. And yet... The face I'd dreamed of so often in my delirium had been the face of this girl. This lady live here on hotel. It's known by name Etoile. Etoile, huh? Ah. All right. Thank you, boy. Etoile. Was she by any chance uh, who you thought she was? Um, no, no, I, I was wrong. I mistook her for someone else entirely. I see. Merely a case of mistaken identity, hmm? Yes. That's very interesting. In view of this note, but... The waiter slipped this into my hand when he came back. It's addressed to uh, Mr. Armour, so it isn't mine. But I don't... Why not open it and read it? Now, I, for one, am quite interested in finding out what a complete stranger has to say to you. While Kento stared at me thoughtfully through the smoke from his cigarette, I unfolded the paper and read the hastily written lines and then crumpled it and thrust it into my pocket without showing it to him. The words danced in my brain. My dearest David... Why would you not speak to me when I came to your table? Have you forgotten me? Do the six years we spent together mean nothing to you? Please come to me at once. As always, your adoring wife, Etoile. Kento probed skillfully, trying to discover the contents of the note Etoile had sent me. But I had no intention of telling him. I left him still sitting there at the table and went to the lobby. Talked briefly with a room clerk and with the antique dealer who kept a shop in the foyer. Ten minutes later, I stepped into an elevator and rode up to the seventh floor. And an hour after I'd seen a toile in the bar, I was facing her again through the open doorway of her room. Her dark hair lay softly on her shoulders. Her skin was velvet and warm cream. The subtle scent of an Amir perfume hung in the air like a tender challenge. She was lovely. She was supposed to be my wife. And I couldn't remember her. David, my darling, won't you please come in? Thank you. I, uh, 
suppose you're Etoile? <laughs> well, of course, David. And you did send me a note downstairs in the bar. But who else, my dear? I... Oh, it's the old trouble again, isn't it? Trouble? The sickness of forgetfulness, my doctor called it. So often you suffered from it at Su Chow, weeks at a time. Su Chow? Don't you remember Willow House, the beautiful estate that Uncle Liu gave us when we were... Oh, that's why you did not speak to me in the bar. You've forgotten all of it. Even me. Yes, I, I'm i afraid you'll have to bear with me, Etoile. I, I don't mean to hurt you, Oh, it but... doesn't matter, my darling. I, I understand. I've been so terribly worried since you ran away from Su Chow four months ago. But now we're back together and everything is all right again. Etoile, tell me, when was it we were married? In the month of December 1941. See, I, I carry the paper with me always. Yes. We were married in the Chinese manner by Uncle Wang. And then Uncle Liu gave us Willow House. And we lived there all through the war? Well, why weren't we bothered, I mean, by the Japanese? Uncle Wang was very important in the puppet government. He was mayor of Su Chao before the guerrillas shot him. I see. Why not come with me to Su Chao tomorrow, David? Perhaps, perhaps when you see Willow House again, you'll remember. All right. Uh, suppose we leave around noon. Anytime you say. Good, then I'll arrange to hire a car. Uh, there is one thing, David. I think it is better... You know now, instead of remembering later. Oh? What's that? Uh, your job during the war. Uncle Wang arranged it for you. Well? Uh, you translated captured American documents for the Japanese army. Oh, great. You didn't realize what you were doing, and, and we had to live. I'm, I'm sorry, Etoile. I, I, I'd better get out of here. Uh, I'll call for you tomorrow. David! Even though you can't remember me yet as your wife, could you not at least kiss me goodnight? Well, uh, I, uh, of course. David. Until noon tomorrow, darling. Good night. Early the next morning, I climbed into a hired car and headed out of Shanghai. Etoile was not with me. I had to face this for the first time alone. I felt I was heading into a showdown. Etoile's story was backed up by something else I'd learned the night before. The antique dealer at the hotel had told me he wasn't sure of the significance of the little porcelain rabbit the doctor at Feng Yang had turned over to me, but he was certain that it had come from Su Chao. A servant let me into the Willow House, and he left me alone in a large room furnished sparsely in the Chinese manner. I wandered about idly, still finding nothing that said to me, you've been here before, until suddenly I came face to face with a crude poster looking very much out of place against the dainty lacquer screen. It was an offer of reward issued by the Japanese army during the war. The photograph on the poster was blurred beyond all likeness, but the wording was clear enough. $50,000, dead or alive, for the guerrilla general, Hemenes Kinto. 
makes rather an interesting souvenir, don't you think so, Mr. Arnold? No, do not draw the gun, you're covered, as they say. Well, welcome to my humble abode, Mr. Kento, or is it the other way around? Neither, as a matter of fact. Willow House was an undercover guerrilla headquarters in this area during the war. And this whole business of being married and so on was another of your ideas? Is that right? <laughs> I'm afraid so, Mr. Armour. It was a very capable operator, a guerrilla colonel, as a matter of fact. You were never married to her. Uh, come on in, Louis. All right, you've fooled me into coming up here to Su Cha, but what good's it going to do? Can't tell you any more now than I could have in Shanghai. Perhaps not, but my little scheme also involves a certain Mr. Chen. If he has not followed you here already, I believe he will do so soon. Then you're putting your money on Chen as the man who stole the Tang bronzes. Is that it? His uh, insistence that you leave China seems to me suspicious. I intend to question him. Couldn't you have done it in Shanghai? Not with his greater freedom. My questioning is always thorough. Well, that's your business. As far as I'm concerned, I'm heading back to Shanghai right now. I'm afraid that's impossible. Etoile has already taken the liberty of paying off your chauffeurs. Etoile? Mm. She rode up here with you under a blanket in the back seat. She's quite resourceful. Now, look here. If you think for one minute... Please, that... Mr. Armour. There is an old Chinese proverb which says, he who rides the tiger finds it easier to get on than to get off. Yui, I think you'd better get the gun from our hot-headed friend. A most excellent suggestion. He's in this pocket, I believe. Ah, yes. Thank you, Mr. Armour. And look, General Quinto. He has been collecting souvenirs. One of the little porcelain rabbits, huh? Etoile didn't tell me you had stopped in Sucha to go shopping. I didn't. I had that figurine with me when I stumbled into Feng Yang Mission. What? The doctor gave it back to me. Why did you not tell me? These little figurines come from a temple right here in Sucha. They're given out to pilgrims during the annual festival. Mr. Armour, does the name Mei Ren Pagoda, Temple of the Moon, mean anything to you? Mei Ren? Temple of the Moon? Hey, wait. Yes, yes, it's coming back to me. And Mr. Chen, too. And the Tang bronzes. I remember now, Kento, I can remember. It's much less unfortunate that you can, Mr. Armour. Mr. Chen. The gun, General Kinto. Drop at one. Uh, other one also. Uh-huh. So, Mr. Armour, lost memory has returned. Yes. Yes, I only saw you a few times during the seven years. That's why I didn't recognize you. You were the abbot in the Temple of the Moon. After previous abbot was disposed of early in 1942, uh, Temple Service excellent headquarter for operation of this lonely one. Also, a very amusing uh, location being so near to your headquarters, General Kinto. And do I understand that you are a collaborator? Quite so. Among other things, of course... Even Kung Fu Tse say men must live. Yes, yes. I wandered here to the temple after that accident in Shanghai. The old abbot took me in without question, and I became one of the brothers. I had no memory at all. was out of my mind half the time. They, they called me the, uh, the forgetful one. What about the Tang bronzes, Mr. Arnold? Well, one night I couldn't sleep. I wandered onto the balcony of the great hall of the temple. Chen was there with some other men who were showing him the four bronzes they just brought in. I... I had a vague feeling that they were very important. I guess that's why I raved about them later at Feng Yang Hospital. Mr. Armour, you know what was done with the bronzes after you saw them? Yes, they, they were buried that same night under the tiles beside the seventh pool in the temple courtyard. Mr. Chen, are they still there? Oh, but of course. And in a matter of moments, you may tell location to ancestors. Mr. Chen, by your own admissions, added to things of which I know already, you are apparently guilty of collaboration, theft... A number of murders and various high crimes against China. 
Have you anything to say in your defense? Only to confess freely. Much less satisfying feeling when confessor hold gun in hand. Then I find you guilty and the case is closed. Oh, it's most amusing, General Quinto. Colonel Letoile, you will carry out the sentence of the court. As you say, General. <laughs> Excellent shooting, Colonel Letoile. Oh, not at all. The range was nearly point blank. Man should be designed with eyes in back of head. Man should not try to ride the tiger. This lowly one, muchly favored by having such beautiful executioner. Thank you, little Chen. Mr. Armour, you have met it well before, under a false impression. May I now present her as my wife? Your wife? Well, last night I thought she was my wife. <laughs> yes, uh, such are the remarkable ways of fate, hmm? You didn't mind it, did you, David? Colonel Etoile. Oh, my Jimenez. But come, we must round up the men and enter the temple as quickly as possible. We cannot afford to lose the bronzes now. You're quite right. Louis, take care of the late lamented Mr. Chen. Come it well. You have served well, Mr. Armour. My advice to you now, go to San Francisco at once, to your wife, your own wife. Adios. Come and see us, David, when we are the rulers of China. Au revoir. I stood there and watched her go, swinging along beside him, lithe and graceful. And a sudden, sharp feeling as of loneliness came over me. Then the moment passed and I smiled to myself. She was only a part of all this. These stirring and exciting events. Nothing more. In San Francisco, the wife whom I loved was waiting for me. And Adrian, too, was a very beautiful woman. Escape is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Today we have presented Transcribed, He Who Rides the Tiger by James Norman. Adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield. With editorial supervision by John Dunkel. Starred as David Armour with Bill Conrad. With Barry Kroger as General Kinto. Featured in the cast were Maria Palmer, Jack Crucian, Ben Wright and Edgar Barrier. Escape has come to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.